to the book of 1 Peter. It is good to gather together on a Sunday and pour out our praise for our Savior. We most certainly did stand beneath a debt we could never afford. Our sins put us in quite a situation, facing the wrath of God, facing eternal condemnation, and we had no way of escaping this ourselves, our strength, our goodness, nothing within us could, could get us there. We, were, we are doomed without Christ. But this amazing thing happens, where according to the great mercy of God, He births within us a living hope in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and now He is our life. Jesus is life. He is the living water that quenches our soul's thirst, and He is the bread from heaven that satisfies those who hunger for righteousness. He is the lamb that was slain in our place that we might be forgiven. He is the lion that devoured our death. He is the Son of Man born in the flesh to redeem all things. Christ is life, and without Him, We have nothing. Our faith is nothing without Him. And yet, isn't our our faith so weak? And it's feeble and it's forgetful. And all these great things, and barely make it through the week in our minds. And so, this faith of ours, it needs to be strengthened needs to grow and to mature. And as the Bible tells us, as we will find today, one of the greatest ways that God strengthens our faith is to cast us into the furnace of affliction, for us to go through trials, tribulations, suffering. And today, as we consider our text in 1 Peter, I'm going to introduce a number of biblical concepts regarding suffering. And then we're going to answer the question, what is it about suffering that leads to praise and glory and honor? And I know that this morning there are many here who are suffering. Probably every person here today is touched by it in some way. So these are not light things. These are not things that we can just cavalierly talk about. There's great heartache going on right now. And one of these I want to bring particular attention to this morning. Um, Elaine and Dave have uh, a son whose fiance, fiance, Laurel, 28 years old, just had a seizure for the first time in her life, completely randomly, after working out. The doctors found a clot on her brain stem. And right now, as we speak, she's in a medically induced coma at Albany Medical Center. Who knows what God is doing? But we know that he is doing something. So we're going to pray for Laurel, for the Fuller family right now. Father, we lift Laurel up to you and ask that you would work in a powerful way. Oh Lord, would it be your will to restore her to health and to her family? But in all of it, Father, be glorified. Show yourself as good 
as trustworthy, as supremely wise. We pray that the faith of Dave and Elaine would shine exceedingly bright in this dark moment. Whatever may happen, that Christ would be so desirable, would quench these thirsts and these hungers that are raging in this moment. Lord, for all here who are suffering this morning, be their comfort and peace. Remind them of the great hope that lies before them, that these afflictions are still somehow light and momentary, and there is an eternal weight of glory on the horizon, and it's coming, and it's coming, and it's real. We thank you for this promise. In Christ's name, amen. First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray once more. God, these words are absolutely profound and so should so shape our reality, and I pray that you would allow them to do that this morning. As was already prayed, would our hearts be fertile to receive your word this morning and use my mouth, God, to sow. In Christ's name we trust. Amen. Our passage starts with, in this you rejoice, in verse 6. In this you rejoice. So what is the this? What is this that we are rejoicing in? And of course, that's all that has come in the past, in, in the preceding two verses. God's great gift of faith that he is birthed within each one of us. The gift of giving us an unshakable life filled with hope, our union with Christ, so profound that when he rose from the grave, we rose from the grave. And an inheritance from God that is imperishable and unfading and undefiled. In all these things, we have great reason to rejoice. In this, we rejoice. What mercies the Father has lavished upon us. What promises he gives us that are unshakable. What joys of salvation he works. Next week for Palm Sunday, we're going to look at the words of First Peter where he says, you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. The bedrocks of our faith, the soaring heights of hope, these are inexpressibly glorious joys. Yes, in these things we rejoice. We will always rejoice. For all eternity, the elect will rejoice in these truths. 
But from these happy heights of salvation, Peter brings us crashing down into our world of pain and suffering. Look at verse 6 again. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So are we not grieved by various trials? They're all kinds. Bodies that fail, dreams that die and temptations that won't, loss, relational strife, pandemics and politics and persecutions. Then, of course, there are the internal trials of depression and anxiety and insecurity and loneliness and so on. But let's just say, hypothetically, that somehow you remain untouched by all of these afflictions. There is no personal suffering that you are experiencing today, which is hardly believable. But let's just say, hypothetically, that that's your experience right now. One moment of lucid global awareness would sober you immediately and fill your heart with terrible sorrow as African children are taken from their homes and brainwashed to become bloodthirsty soldiers and people groups in China are slowly being made to disappear and jihadis are collecting the heads of infidels and America has devoted herself to the killing of her unborn. To be alive in such a godless world is, is, is itself painful. The possibilities for suffering are manifold and endless. And all of us are touched by affliction. And perhaps these considerations right now are giving you a sense of sorrow, rightly. How we live as Christians in the middle of this great paradox. We can't forget the great works of salvation that God has given to us that fills us with inexpressibly glorious joy. And Paul captures our reality well in 2 Corinthians 6.10 where he says, We are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. This life is a long drink of wine and vinegar. And it seems like a long drink. But in verse 6, Peter writes that these trials are now for a little while. A little while. Of course, this little while means your mortality, your mortal life, this life you're in now. And he's essentially, Peter's essentially saying, this is just a short stint of suffering and of pain. And Paul likewise writes, as I've alluded to already, that these afflictions are light and momentary. And God is reminding us that this marriage of of pleasure and pain, of joy and sorrow, is only a brief moment. And when you stack it up in Light of eternity, it's just a sliver of a piece of paper. It's, it's nothing. It's light. It's momentary. But to be honest, the weight of our present sufferings diminished to a light and momentary affliction is hardly capable of dissolving the pain. The hurt is real, and the sorrow is real, and the illness is real, and no matter how long it is, it still feels like it's too long. And so many have turned their back on God because the pain of this life is too great. And so many have thought the pain of this life to be too great that it's not even worth living. 
But in verse 6, there's this conditional clause that flips everything on its head. Look at it again. Look at verse 6 again. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Did you catch that conditional clause? If necessary. A whole world hangs on those two words. If necessary. Those words mean that there's something behind your suffering and my suffering and the whole world's. Someone is behind this world of suffering. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord commanded it? Is it not from the Most High that good and bad come? Then in Isaiah 45, God speaks for himself. I form the light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all things. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or who has, or your work has no handles? Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Once again we see, God is the first cause of all things, even our suffering. And Peter is not afraid to dive headlong into the sovereignty of God. And we'll see him return to it numerous times in his letter. And just as God predestines those whom he elects, he also predestines all things, knowing the end from the beginning and bringing about all of his purposes and no one will thwart his hand. God makes well-being and he makes calamity. But God is not capricious or random. He's not spiteful or cruel nor vindictive. His purposes are supremely good. And if he has purposes in suffering, then that makes suffering itself a good. It has meaning. It has value. It's worthwhile. Suffering is. But, for, but to see that, we need our next verse. Verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So to understand what God is doing with suffering, we need to first look at this image of gold, this unparalleled symbol throughout human history of value and wealth. As you probably know, when gold is removed from the earth, when it's mined, it is rough and filled with impurities, and so it needs to be taken to the refiner, to the fire, and heated to nearly 2,000 degrees and melted. And in its molten state, the impurities rise to the surface and are easily skimmed off and removed, purifying that gold. And then that liquid gold is cast into something beautiful and new. That same gold but bearing very little resemblance to what it once was. Gold in the rough, 
is precious for what it can be. Gold refined is precious because of what the refiner has done to it. And even as precious as gold is, it's temporal and we can't take it with us. It is passing away. But now we come to what cannot pass away. Faith. Precious faith. More precious than a whole world filled of the most refined gold. But we, those whom God calls to be born again, the elect, we do not begin this world. In this world of sin, already refined. We are still plagued with sin. And we have doubt. And our belief is often conditional, fragile. We confuse God's will with our own will. We rely on ourselves rather than rely on God. So our faith is filled with impurities. Loads of them. More than we know. We are much like the desperate father who once cried out to Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. Those God has given faith and made, al- made come alive to this living hope have yet to be consumed by those realities. None of us have been. D.L. Moody once wrote, the world has yet to see a man fully consecrated to God. And so we have these impurities in our hearts and in our lives. And the heat must be applied to drive them out. And so God casts those that he loves into the furnaces of affliction. Today we're not going to concern ourselves with the sufferings of the whole world, the suffering that everybody experiences, the suffering of the wicked, the fallenness of the earth, Peter will eventually take us there, and we will eventually consider those things. But suffice it to say that it's because of sin. Sin deserves immediate death, and it's a wonder that God doesn't do that. But a world that has fallen and plagued with sin is a consequence, or plagued with pain is a consequence of our sinfulness. Today, though, we are going to concern ourselves with another question. If a person has genuine faith, what happens in the face of suffering? In other words, how does the furnace of affliction refine your faith? So in the face of suffering, we're all confronted with the reality that we have no control over our circumstances. If we did, we wouldn't feel pain. We cannot depend upon ourselves to change things. We can't even depend on ourselves to have the strength to get through anything. And often suffering strips us of all of the things that we love and the things that we think we can't live without, the things that we have made into false gods. Suffering reveals all the things of this world and all the strengths that I possess to be pathetic substitutes for God. 
And once stripped of the things that we cannot live without, we finally understand that all that there's left is Jesus. He alone remains. He is the rock in the midst of the storm, the refuge when all is chaos. And as Tim Keller writes, you don't really know Jesus is all you have until Jesus is all you have. Those are the moments where faith becomes real. When, our, when we are truly living in hope. This living hope, this unshakable faith, allows us to look beyond our suffering, beyond the present afflictions, to see Christ who stands beyond it, who rescues us from it, who will restore us out of it. He, our rock and our refuge, this light and momentary affliction is seen to be light and momentary when we realize the weight of glory that is coming, that he holds in his hand, ready to give to us. Suffering shows us these things. And it's in those times of suffering that the precious nature of faith is finally revealed. As C.S. Lewis writes, pain is the megaphone of God's love. God whispers to us through comfort, and he shouts at us through pain. We know that no matter how hard, no matter how devastating the loss, no matter how dark the depression, we have faith that God sees and he loves and he will one day restore. Psalm 58, David writes in 56, You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day that I call. This I know. That God is for me. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall, shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. So God not only keeps track of every pain, every tear, but he will one day restore all that was lost and wipe away every tear that has fallen. What love God has for his children. What love in turn we have for him who loves us so tremendously. Is there anything on this earth that is better than these promises, than these realities? Is there anything that you would rather have than this? Is there anything else that you would want more than to fall into the arms of your Savior when all is finished? This process of looking beyond the pain and seeing our Savior and that day when we will one day be united with God, this process is the refining process. Romans 5, verses 3 to 5, we rejoice in our sufferings. What a line! We rejoice in our sufferings, 
Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Again, the question, how does the furnace of of affliction refine our faith? The answer is that suffering reveals the things of this world and the strengths that I possess to be pathetic substitutes for God, unworthy. And so we look beyond the pain and we see our infinitely worthy Savior and rely on Him and we trust in Him and we love Him. And we are refined bit by bit from one degree of glory to another. The furnace of affliction purifies our hearts of faith. And Jesus promised, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But it does seem to me that there is a problem in verse 7. Look at it with me once more. So that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The tested genuineness of your faith. So we see faith is being tested through the trials of suffering that we endure. But God is omniscient, right? He knows all things. Why does he need to test us if he knows all things? If he knows the results of the test, why does he need to give the test? What's the point of all the suffering if God knows already if our faith is genuine? He birthed it in us after all. Well, knowing that gold can be refined, does not itself refine the gold. It still needs the fire. And so God knows perfectly the temperature, the duration that each lump needs to reveal the highest quality of faith. So we ultimately come to this unquestionable sovereignty of God. We cannot question Him nor His methods. All we can do is trust that He knows infinitely more than us, and we cast our souls upon Him on the rock that He is. Isaiah 48, God says, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I might not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver or gold in our situation. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Therefore, Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. God knows 
and when he casts us into the furnace of affliction, though the suffering is painfully real, let us rejoice. He is working something good. He is refining something beautiful and trust your soul to him. The fire may be hot. It is hot. But these flames are kindled in love. And to truly see that, we must finish the passage. This time I'm going to read verse 7 without the parentheses. And a little bit of verse 6. You have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This praise, glory, and honor is most specifically talking about your praise and glory and honor. The praise, glory, and honor that you, the elect, will receive at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You, if you are one of his, will receive praise and glory and honor. You will. You of little faith. You who need help believing. You. And the God, God is the one who himself will lavish upon you this praise and this glory and this honor. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Each one will receive his commendation from God. In a parable, Jesus says this of what the Father will say to a trusted servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Entering into the joy of your master means that the master is enjoying, is delighting, and is rejoicing in this faithful servant. When Peter writes about elders, he, he writes a truth that's really true for all of us. In 1 Peter 5, 4, when he writes, And the chief shepherd, Jesus, when he appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Praise and glory and honor for you. And now we come to that final question, that one that hangs over this entire passage in my mind, and it's the one that I asked you in the midweek update and gave you for homework. What is it about suffering that leads to praise and glory and honor? First, we must understand the nature of God. Genuine faith is supremely precious to God because He delights to be trusted in. God loves to be trusted more than your bank account, more than your retirement, more than your family, more than this church, more than all things God delights to be trusted in. And since God's evaluation of something is the ultimate standard in the universe, faith is the most precious thing that any human being can possess. God has an infinite love 
for those who possess faith. It's almost an unbearable statement that God has infinite love for those who possess faith. And faith is refined in the furnace of affliction. How precious that furnace then. So when suffering reveals all things to be untrustworthy and your trust falls finally upon God, then he rejoices. And when your powers are finally proven to be weakness and from God you draw strength, then it is his pleasure. And when in a world of sorrow, your hope in Jesus floods you with present joy, then God exalts. Nothing pleases God more than when we cast our troubled, weak hearts upon Jesus and, our good pla- and the good plans of our loving Father. Nothing pleases Him more than that. So what is it about suffering that leads to praise, glory, and honor? That when you endure through a world of trial and tribulation while trusting your life to God, he will lavish upon you praise and glory and honor. You didn't turn to these other things. You turn to him and he will give you praise and glory and honor. A few moments ago, though, I read from Isaiah 48 where God says, My glory I will not give to another. And so you need to see how your glory, your praise, your honor in no way diminishes his. In fact, it ends up feeding his. And this is one of the most beautifully wise plans. It is the most beautiful and wise plan in the universe. God will heap praise and glory and honor upon you if you are faithful to the end, and it will only serve to magnify his own praise and glory and honor because one day when God says to you, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. When he praises you for your faith, when he honors you with unimaginably great rewards, You will fall on your face in utter humility and awe and say, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. I did nothing. I am not worthy. It was Jesus. All I have is Christ, and he has done everything. And we will join in heaven's song. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He took what was impure, and he cleansed it. He took what was broken and he restored it. He took what was sinful and he forgave it. He took what was faithless and he made it faithful. He did it. He did it all. And we will cast our crowns before him who lived and died and lives again. Our righteousness, our rock and our refuge, our Savior and our Lord, Jesus Christ. Though God will reward his elect, with praise and glory and honor, with abounding joy, we will return it to him. And we will know this endless pleasure of fatherly affirmation returned 
and jubilant praises. These are the promises that lie before us. <laughs> All this world of pain cannot tarnish these truths and cannot take them from you. Even in the midst of our present suffering, we have much to rejoice in. Much to rejoice in. And I know that these words are not going to eliminate your sorrow somehow. And really, they're not meant to. They're meant to, in the midst of your sorrow, increase your joy. May they further fix your eyes upon the object of our faith, who is Jesus Christ. So have hope, those who are weary. This is just a little while. Have hope, my friends. God sees every tear that falls. Have hope, brothers and sisters. Your faith is being refined. Have hope, God's beloved. Every sorrow will be extinguished when, in, when faith turns to sight and, you're, and you are flooded with pure, exuberant, eternal joy at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But until that day, this is our living hope. We live in it. Let your faith only grow, even if by suffering. And know that it is okay to have little faith. In reality, we all do. And until we see our Savior's faith, face, let our enduring cry be, I believe, help my unbelief. Father, we believe. Help our unbelief. Thank you. Eternally thank you for the gift of faith. And even if it takes pain, refine us, Father. Help us to see in the trial your good hand at work and to trust you. You know these things are not natural for us, and so we need you even, even to see clearly. And Lord, though it's hard to say, thank you for the pain that we might know you more, that we might enjoy you more, that our faith, faith might be more real, that our hope might be more living. And we long for the day where we will hear you say those words, well done, good and faithful servant. We long for that day. Hasten the day. In Christ's name I pray, amen.